Welcome back to the iFloat Radio Podcast. This is David here at iFloat, and I am sitting here with Dr. Verdi, Dr. Colvin Verdi. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. I say that a lot at the start of the podcast. I should have checked that before, but I tend to get people's names correct. In fact, yesterday or the day before, I was at Staples, and there was a woman who had a name that I had actually never experienced before, but I pronounced it correctly, and she was really impressed that I pronounced her name correctly. So I guess uh, I've studied some languages, so, so that helps. But to, to start off, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Mental Arts Network, which is a sponsor of the iFloat Radio Podcast. The Mental Arts Network teaches business management tools and teaching mm -hmm. business people how to take on different points of view and use the tool of neural programming to mm -hmm. find solutions in their businesses and for individuals in their personal lives. You can check out the courses that Mental Arts Network offers at mentalartsnetwork.com and, and I actually teach some of those courses. And now, now we're going to get started. So Colleen, let's actually first start by me telling people that you're a, a naturopathic physician and you and I were just sitting in the lobby before your float and so let's talk a little bit about that we'll just we'll just start right there so here that you me and this other gentleman are in the lobby and it's almost like uh, it's almost like a, a flow facilitator a naturopath and, and a driver walk into a bar, except this time they walked into the lobby of a float center. And uh, talk a little bit about what your experience was, was then. So when I first saw him, it was clear that he was here supporting somebody who really benefits m medically from receiving floats. And um, he has been coming here, I'm assuming, for months now no he hasn't actually oh. so this is this is a woman that the woman that he drove today is a woman who has been coming here for many months actually but she this is the first day that he drove her she has she has sponsorship or she's her workers compensation insurance company is paying for her float sessions and paying for a driver to take her here because it's a little bit of a it's a bit of a distance for her to come, and she has different drivers that come. There are two main drivers that come, both of whom I've gotten to know really well. One of whom has floated, the other one has not. But this gentleman today came for the first time today. Okay. So that's that's okay. the context. So um, I saw him sitting on the couch. I saw the woman that he brought over go in for her float. Everybody was giddy. I feel like most people who walk in here for their float is giddy and excited. Um, and so I, I was talking about how excited I was to be floating. And I, f I just found something curious about him, something perplexing about the fact that he was bringing somebody to a float. He's never really heard of floats before. Um, and it was clear that he felt as if the concept of a float is incredible, luxurious. I think most people think that it is. Um, and as we got to talking, David and I realized that he has barriers up against floating and specifically against 
the concept of spending money on himself because I'm going to try to quote him exactly, but he basically said, if I float once and I really enjoy it, then I'll want to do it again and I'll think about it and I'll feel sad that I'm not doing it because I'll enjoy it so much. He also actually said that I might, he said I'm concerned I might get addicted to it. Exactly. <laughs> <He> said, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that that's what was interesting because he he also talked about how he had had some kind of condition at some point where he had to get massages and he got so accustomed to getting the massages that when the insurance wasn't paying for the massages anymore, he missed the massages mm-hmm. so much. And, and that's just really interesting thinking. Obviously, you and I both questioned him on it, but he just didn't want to go there. Yeah. And it's like one of those things that, that somebody... Somebody, what's coming up in my mind is this idea that sometimes people are like, well, I don't want to have a pet because they're going to die. And it's kind of like, yeah. well, yeah, and so are you. <laughs> you know, and so is everybody around you. Yeah. And so, yeah, I get that it's painful. In fact, I was thinking of that recently because I know somebody lost their, their dog recently. And I, was, I was looking at one of my dogs last night and I was like, oh, and they're getting a little bit older. And, and, and so when they do pass... Um, it'll be sad, but, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't not have had them, you know, I wouldn't give up the experience of all those years just because I'm going to lose them. But of course that's way more dramatic than like not being able to floor or get a massage. But I think that the other thing that I brought up was I said, well, where, where might it be that you are putting money into places that could be reallocated and then that he didn't want to go there either didn't want to talk about that and and that's the thing I, I had a conversation yesterday with a gentleman who is considering opening up his own business and he had an uncomfortable float and i had heard the last time he was here that he was interested in opening up his business and so his float yesterday was a little uncomfortable and he talked about some like visions that he had and i have a I'm very comfortable talking to people about that. And one of them was like a part of the body that he was talking about. And it was about the nose. And and I said, the nose is associated with possibilities. We can actually smell like spring before it comes in the winter. It's, it's associated with that. So I said, I said, does this have something to do with like you opening up the business? I was like, where is it that you're getting in the way of opening up your, your business? And he says, well, I think it's financial. And so I was talking to him about the classes we teach here, the medical arts classes on neural programming. And I said, I said, well, just so you know, what happens in a float is you go into the subconscious part of the mind and you're accustomed to being in the, con- being in the conscious part, but when you float, you're, you're going into the subconscious part. And as you may be bumping into places where you are, you're getting in your way and there's discomfort there. And so one of the things I talked to him about was, was belief and beliefs in real that form early on. And so I just said, I could sense that there was something about money I said, have you ever thought about what it is that you believe about money? And that stopped him cold. Like he, he just like looked at me like a deer in headlights. Like I've never even considered that before. And I said, well, that's, that might be something that for you to start to look at is what you even believe about money, which ultimately is almost like energy. It's energy flow. And, and there are places where people including ourselves where it's like oh it's like i've decided that money can't flow in that way Mm -hmm. and therefore energy can't flow in that way and therefore i'm going to shut myself off from something that potentially might be really good for me because i've decided and when we can actually get in the float tank when we can talk to people about things and take on different points of view 
Then all of a sudden, there what we thought was just a single door, all of a sudden all these other doors appear, and it's like, wow, I can actually walk through that door or that door, and those would be better ways of moving forward than this other one. And this obviously relates to health, and, and for the people listening, uh, this is... Um, the what is the month explain the month again it's prostate yeah. awareness month is it prostate cancer awareness month. yeah prostate cancer awareness month and so talking about about men's health and and do you want me to call you, call you dr verdi or colvin or, either one okay yeah. we'll call you dr verdi okay because <laughs> that's what you are and this is and so dr verdi was uh she specializes uh in working with men and so it's just really interesting it's always interesting to look at just phenomena and how we had this experience with a man mm-hmm. who was very resistant, despite like two people who work in health and wellness just kind of being like, oh yeah, you might want to look at it this way to like, you know, if you're really drawn to do it, you could maybe, and, and just the, the wall, the walls, the walls yeah. went up. And, and so, uh, so let's talk a little bit about where, where that, how that relates to, to what you do. So um, I consider myself a men's health advocate, and it's because over the years in medical school and in residency, I always found that men would wait a long time until they were very uncomfortable before seeing a physician. And I'm not sure. I think a lot of things contribute to it. Uh, I think the relationship with money and time definitely plays into it. with this gentleman that we saw in the waiting room, he he admitted to having health conditions, to having a lot of stress, to needing to de-stress in some way. And I think a lot of men are able to acknowledge those aspects of their health and parts of their health and wellness routine that need fine-tuning or adjusting. But I think it can be hard for men to find resources or to open themselves up to receiving healthcare. And um, in my practice as a men's health physician, one of the, the big things that I focus on is the how natural medicine pertains to men and men's physiology, um, men's hormones. There's a, a big focus for a long time, healthcare was focused on men and a lot of early studies and texts and research was done primarily on men um, until around the early 19th century when people started to become more interested in women's medicine realizing that women are completely different entities medically and you you would see this switch now in healthcare where especially within natural medicine there's a big focus on women's health and women's physiology and women's herbs and you don't see that so much for men. And so a lot of my practice is specializing in how natural health pertains to the men's physiology. Mm. So now the talk about the why, why is the prostate cancer awareness month happening? Like what, what is it given that, that that's this month? What is it that you would like people to know? about this condition, how to prevent it, and so forth? So prostate cancer generally is a a very slow-progressing cancer. Many men who have been diagnosed with it will pass away of something else um, rather than the prostate cancer that they've been diagnosed with. But 
every once in a while there's a very invasive, quick spreading um, type of prostate cancer that men are diagnosed with. So the biggest thing with prostate cancer is really early detection. And that brings us to the, the topic of men seeking healthcare, seeking preventative modalities of treatment, especially if they have a family history of prostate cancer, getting regular screenings is very important. Yeah, it's interesting as you say that because the we track the people who come to float and it's pretty much 50-50 in terms of the percentage of people who come that are male and the percentage that are that are female and a lot of people are surprised by that. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think part of it could be I know that that Joe Rogan who is a, a big proponent of floating, he he draws a lot of uh, men, particularly young men, to float. But one of the things I was just talking to someone about, like last, in the last hour, the Nicole, who works for National Awakenings magazine, is that we maintain a very neutral stance as a float center. I can't speak for other float centers, but it's it's when people come in here, we want it to be a neutral experience because people are coming for different reasons. And people of different ages come, male, female, different sociological demographics. So we want the space to be really neutral so that when people go in, everything is, they're just comfortable with being in these sensory isolation tanks and everything, having everything stripped away. And so maybe, I don't know if that, if that helps or not, I'm, I'm not really sure, but, but it, is, it is interesting that it's, uh, it's pretty much like 50-50 yeah. like down, down the board. And, one of the things that I'm always talking to people about working on is just like hammering away the practical benefits of, of coming in here. And just on that note, before we talk a little bit more about the, about the, uh, the, some of the topics of, of health, uh, you, how have your uh, flow sessions been for you? How have they gone? So I, before I decided to do my first float about two years prior to meeting David and coming to iFloat. I had a um, member of one of my lab teams in med school bring up the fact that she had floated out in Tempe, Arizona, where there's also an iFloat. And I asked her what it was and she said, well, you're pretty much in a small chamber, completely dark, soundproof, you're floating in salt water. And I remember thinking to myself, and I think I actually said out loud, I could never do that. That's terrifying. I would get so claustrophobic. And when I came to my first holistic happy hour, I remember stepping into one of the float rooms and looking into the floating area. And once again, I said I could never do that. And, you know, at one point, David said to me, you know, many people who are nervous about going into floats just have a fear of losing control and is that something that you're afraid of and I laughed <laughs> I laughed and then I left and it stuck with me for about another month or two and I finally decided I I should try it out and it definitely was not a terrifying experience I didn't get claustrophobic I went through my first float totally relaxed and actually left feeling like I had conquered a big phobia of mine, which is tight, dark 
spaces. Um, and David was mentioning how that can open up doors, how the process of floating can open up doors for people. And it definitely um, opened up, first of all, the, the door to not confining myself to preconceptions that I have about myself. Um, it also is very intimate to be alone in a space with yourself, completely dark, no, no sensory input whatsoever. And that was also a journey. It seems like every time, even this time when I was floating, it was a, a journey and it's kind of like, where is my mind going to take me this time? What, what issues are going to come up or what, what, um, images will I see? And yeah, it's just been a really interesting experience. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do remember having that conversation. That's a, that's a common conversation I have with people is this, this idea of control. And that is a, it's, it's not the control that's the problem because as I tell people, we want to be in control of the steering wheel when we're driving. That's a really good thing. It's good to be in control of the, the coffee or tea cup or mug that, that you're bringing up to your face because you want it to go right to your mouth. So it's not the control as much as what, what it is that we believe that we're trying to control. And when, when people go think of going into a flotation tank, one of the things is that they're they're, they lose a sense of orientation because they're not getting all this input to remind them of like who they are and how important they are in this way or that way and, and that gets stripped away and so there, there's a lot of fear of like losing those references and it's, it's one of the important things that we do as people who run a float center that we have to educate people in that way so that they have a bridge with which to walk into the float tank in their mind mm -hmm. so that they can they can bridge it and they can get in there and, and I always tell people it's like you're gonna get in there and at first your, your brain's gonna want the stimulation and then eventually it, it slows down and it create, creates that that relaxed state now on that note one of the things that that you had brought up was this idea of, of depression emotional health and the structural impact of depression in men mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah so uh, depression is actually a very common medical illness and many men suffer in silence when they experience things like anxiety and depression and um, studies have shown that depression can actually change the hormonal system and the structure of the the brain itself so there's a specific area of the brain called the amygdala and it's involved with processing emotions and specifically negative emotions. And a lot of research has found that in individuals who are depressed, there is an increased size of the amygdala. You could assume with increased size, there's increased functioning. Whereas the, the gray matter of the brain tends to be reduced in these individuals. And there's a specific hormonal axis in our body called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's a fancy way of basically saying your stress control center in your body. And we need stress. We have evolved to create the stress response so that when we see a lion running at us, our body can respond and sprint and climb up a tree and just, you know, escape the predators that we're facing. Um, but that stress response is, is 
specifically solely for life or death situations. But with the, the type of society we live in now, we're able to tap into that stress response to our advantage when we have deadlines we need to meet or we need to be at a meeting by a certain time and we're running late. It allows us to mount all of these physiological changes in our body, increase our blood glucose, get our muscles moving, increase our heart rate. Um, and it's, it's helpful, but when you're doing that on a daily basis, when you're it technically is running away from a lion on a daily basis, it can create long-term impacts on you. Um, specifically a hormone that the brain signals to your adrenal glands to secrete, which is the hormone called cortisol. I just want to interrupt for a second, just in case someone's listening and they were like, I don't run from lions on a daily basis. It's like, no, but do you run away from your wife on a daily basis? <laughs> uh, do you insist on being right on a daily basis? You know, do you, do you isolate yourself from people on a daily basis? Because these are, these are things that, that people are doing that put people in this fight or flight response mm -hmm. unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And so people are unconsciously in a stressed state. And that's one of the things that it gets back into the, the unconscious beliefs and real that we have. But I, but I often talk to people about that, which is we believe that fire is dangerous. It is dangerous. And so if somebody comes at us with a blowtorch, we're either going to like fight them or we're going to run away. It's unlikely we're going to freeze. The thing is, is that sometimes people react as though someone's coming at them with a blowtorch uh, when someone comes up to them and talks to them at a party. Yeah. Or someone disagrees with them, like in a meeting. Yeah. And their 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 temperature elevates. They and they and they're just all day and twenty four seven like in the stress state. Mm -hmm. And so that starts to create these responses you're talking about. So talk a little bit more about cortisol. Yeah. So. Um, really quick, I think it would be helpful, David, you started to bring it up to just go into what it looks like when you're really stressed. Ways to identify it since a lot of people just don't know when they're stressed. So if you notice that during the day your heart will suddenly start racing or your hand will start shaking, uh, you'll lose touch with your thoughts. Um, how often you're screaming, how often you're holding back from yelling at people, how often you're mad at yourself, how often you're second-guessing the things you said or frustrated with yourself for responding in a certain way. Even the quality of your relationships can tell you what your mental, emotional health is like. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. It definitely helps to create a clearer picture for people. And everybody struggles at some point but cortisol itself is one of nature's most powerful anti-inflammatory substances. And the reason why we secrete it in, in times of stress is because stress equals inflammation and our body needs to be able to combat inflammation. Um, cortisol also helps to get us waking up in the morning. So there is a binaural or a diurnal uh, variation in cortisol where it's very high in the morning around five in the morning is when cortisol levels will peak and it'll decline until midday where it'll come up again and then it'll decline again until nighttime where cortisol is at its lowest and it works together with melatonin 
Um, as cortisol decreases, melatonin, which is the sleep and relaxation hormone, will actually come up and signal to the body that it's time to sleep. Great. And so when people are in these stress states and cortisol is being sent throughout the system at an elevated rate, how does that affect the body? Yeah. So it's really interesting because this is a part of science that researchers are still uncovering. Cortisol is such a fascinating hormone in that we can have a complete flip of our, our cortisol rhythms where either it's elevated all the time or it's really low in the morning and really high at night. And in, in those cases, people will feel exhausted when they wake up in the morning. And then at night, they'll try to go to sleep and their, their mind will be racing. They won't be able to calm themselves down. And um, depression is one condition that elevated cortisol levels is highly associated with. And a lot of researchers are thinking that the reason why many antidepressants work is because they lower, they actually have an effect on cortisol levels. Um, Chronic disease often comes together with depression because chronic disease can change the way we've lived. It can set limitations to the things we can do. And interestingly enough, I often have to address abnormal cortisol rhythms in people who have experienced disease to the point where it becomes a chronic condition for them. Yeah, what I was telling you before that there is, I think, just one study on floating that shows a, a reduction in, in cortisol levels as a result of, of floating. And, and that does make sense because what I've experienced and what I observe a lot of people experiencing is that floating takes people into the slower brainwave states of theta and delta. And people generally get to a brainwave frequency where they're not experiencing emotion. Mm-hmm. And by allowing the mind and the whole nervous system to, to access that state, it's a kind of training of, of helping people get to get to a non-stress state. And then the other piece there is when people get to a non-stress state, they're actually able to take on different points of view. So things that maybe they were really upset about, all of a sudden they are in that state of mind able to consider looking at things in a different way. And the, the other piece there is that the... Floating allows people to get to brainwave frequencies that are predominant during the first years of life. So it also allows people to look at, again, like what is it that they believe that may be contributing to something that, that creates a lot of stress. I'm thinking of uh, Andrew, Andrew Wheel or Andrew Wilde, the, the MD yeah. that teaches out in Arizona now. He's written a lot of books. And I remember years ago I read this book, one of the books that he, he, he wrote, and it was about a, a woman that he treated who had chronic fatigue syndrome. And what he told her was that she needed to slow down in her life because she had what he referred to as essentially too much yang in her life and she didn't, she didn't have enough yin. And so he, he outlined like a series of things that she could do in order to, to balance her energy in her life. But what that points at is like why in the first place did she believe she had to be so like active and so high strung and so like go, go, go. And by 
having that communication with another person and, and hopefully for other people by doing modalities like floating or different things that are going to take people out of that intense like really high velocity state uh, it can be really helpful now in terms of the what are some of you talked about how depression can affect the certain certain structures so like that the the amygdala is 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 bigger in people that have depression but what about you talked about i think you mentioned something about depression and in, in the prostate mm-hmm. is there a connection mm-hmm. there yeah so one of the conditions that i do treat is chronic prostatitis and um right now within the medical field there really is no Knowledge. There's a lot of ideas and theories as to what causes chronic prostatitis. And what is chronic prostatitis? Explain that. So chronic prostatitis is a condition of the prostate gland. Through the prostate gland, urine travels and the prostate also produces um, the liquid that is part of semen. And so it's a very important um, male organ, sexual organ. And... Um, during midlife, men can start to experience, and actually it's starting to become more common in, in younger men too, um, a condition where the inflammation makes it difficult for men to urinate. Uh, it can make ejaculation painful. It can create sexual dysfunction. Um, very uncomfortable, uh, debilitating condition. And There are medical treatments. When it becomes chronic, it means that a man's been suffering from it for over six months. And typically acute prostatitis, which happens all of a sudden, is commonly bacterial. But when prostatitis goes from acute to chronic, that's when people aren't able to find bacteria. Um, They're not able to culture it and antibiotics don't work. Oftentimes at this point, men have been on antibiotics, you know, 10 10 or 11 times and they haven't seen a resolution of their symptoms. And they're they're recommended to take a multi-system approach. So they're told to go get counseling, to work with a pelvic floor specialist, to, um, you know, reduce stress in their lives. And there's, include pharmacological therapy and just try to change their entire lifestyle in response to this condition. And that commonly happens when there isn't really any answers in the medical field. Um, From a naturopathic perspective, there are many different causes of prostatitis. And one of them could just be that your body's inflamed because you're consuming foods that are pro-inflammatory. And the urinary tract itself is incredibly sensitive and in situations where there's high cortisol, you can actually see a breakdown of the, the ure, urological barrier in the body and so it can create painful symptoms for people. And this condition is known as interstitial cystitis, but it, it can present and look a lot like prostatitis in men. Um, you can also have pelvic floor dysfunction, which is really common in, in women who experience pain during intercourse, and it commonly is seen with interstitial cystitis. And a lot of researchers have found that it's possible that men who have chronic prostatitis in actuality just have really sensitive muscles in the area, trigger points in the area, pelvic floor dysfunction in the area. Um, 
there's many different causes and in looking at the literature it's interesting because um, elevated levels of cortisol have been shown to impact the severity of symptoms in men who struggle with prostatitis. Um, depression. Depression is a huge one. and So it sounds like, a, I mean, there's definitely a strong component of like inflammation in the mind. Hey, Colvin, so tell me about the difference between a naturopathic doctor and a medical doctor. So the, there's a lot of similarities and there's a, a huge difference. So the main difference is in the treatment approach that a naturopathic doctor would take. So when a naturopathic physician is working with their patient, the, the main focus is on identifying what the underlying cause of their disease condition is. So a migraine, for example, is not just a migraine to a naturopathic doctor. Instead, it could be a migraine that is induced by environmental toxins or a hormonally induced migraine, a migraine because of nutrient deficiencies. And, and so it's during the intake and the conversation with your naturopathic physician where um, the naturopath is able to ascertain what could be causing your set of symptoms. Um, as opposed to medical doctors where a lot of the training is in identifying and diagnosing conditions and then using pharmacological therapy to resolve symptoms. Uh, in terms of medical training, naturopathic physicians also go through four years of medical school. Um, it's at a naturopathic medical program. There's about six in the U.S. right now. And the first two years are heavily focused on um, pathology, histology, anatomy, and physiology. We, we do a cadaver lab the way medical doctors do. Um, biochemistry, all of the hard sciences and, and the clinical sciences we learn the first two years. Um, it's in the second two years that we depart in the sense that we learn pharmacological therapy, but we, we learn so many other tools that you could use to bring somebody back into balance. And they include hundreds of hours of nutritional, clinical nutrition in particular. We learn herbal medicine, acupuncture, um, mind-body therapies. There's just many different tools. And when we're working with our patient, uh, the focus is in figuring out why they're struggling with their condition, whether pharmacological therapy is appropriate for them, or whether you could bring them back into balance using natural therapies, which in most instance, instances are equally effective, if not more effective, with lower side effects. Okay, and talk about why you have chosen to become a naturopathic doctor. So, uh, the main thing that brought me to naturopathic medicine was actually my, my parents and the household that I grew up in, uh, where my mother was a nurse and she was also a hypnotherapist. And so um, a lot of her life has been influenced by traditional medicines like uh, meditation, uh, mantras, yoga, and she, was a nurse mainly for geriatrics and she was able to uh, recognize the fact that the medical system is lacking in in terms of bringing human into medicine and bringing the mind especially into medicine and so she became fascinated with uh, mind-body healing 
medical practices and I grew up watching her make a big difference in her patients' lives just by teaching them how to meditate. And then you have my father, who my father is a, a space engineer. And so I grew up, and he's an atheist, and, and I grew up with two parents that had conflicting ideas of, of the world and of interpreting the world. And it, it created really interesting dialogues. We were always really respectful of everyone. And um, it inspired me to explore traditional medicines and traditional healing practices from a scientific perspective. So even as a teenager in my biology classes, I remember going home and researching, well, what, what is in these foods that make them healthy for us? How do they impact our mind? How do they impact our body? And so it only felt natural to me to eventually move into becoming a naturopathic doctor and using a lot of science-based therapies within my own practice. Now, you, you work a lot with men, and we talked earlier about erectile dysfunction, which I think is like a topic that a lot of men are concerned about. Can you talk a little bit about what you know about it, what your experience has been in working with yeah. some of your patients? So erectile dysfunction, a lot of men won't seek medical attention when they start to experience illness. But erectile dysfunction is definitely one of those diseases that can bring a man to the doctor because it's so uncomfortable and it can really impact your own self-esteem as well as your relationships with the people around you. And uh, it's one thing that I consistently would see throughout my training as a medical, uh, as an ND. And as I started to investigate the causes, it became clear to me that I needed to help men um, within my medical practice. And it's because erectile dysfunction, for a long time, people believed that it was an emotional disease and most people who suffered from it were dealing with anxiety or depression and insecurities and it's really not like that for the most part a lot of men who experience erectile dysfunction um, oftentimes it's an indicator of poor cardiovascular health or um, diabetes and poor blood sugar control sometimes it can be because of low testosterone more often it goes back to cortisol and an impaired stress response and so all of these different things play into it and um, it actually is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease if men have it and they also have underlying cardiovascular inflammation. When I learned that, I realized that we really do need to have men start to see the doctor more when the symptom arises and have doctors that are trained in lifestyle medicine in, in helping men make better choices for uh, their reproductive health, but as well as their health in general. And you mentioned before something about magnesium and testosterone. Can you talk about that? And just to preface that for people that don't know, floating flotation tanks have usually anywhere around like 900, 950 to 1,000 pounds of Epsom salt in it. Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate, so when the salt is dissolved in the solution, then magnesium, magnesium ions are in the solution, and then that gets absorbed into the body. So talk a little bit about the connection between magnesium and testosterone. Yeah, yeah. So um, testosterone is, is that hormone that helps to make all people, not just men, feel confident and feel secure. Um, it can also help with aggression, helping people become achieve their goals and become goal-oriented. So 
it's a very powerful hormone. Um, right now, there's this huge shift towards testosterone replacement therapy, and with football season coming, I'm sure we're going to be bombarded with commercials about low T and replacing T testosterone. Um, that's not how I practice, and I, I think that we need to figure out why people are low in testosterone, and magnesium is such an important nutrient for all sorts of metabolic processes in our body, and most people are magnesium deficient. And part of it has to do with the quality of our food source. Um, many people are on, on acid blockers, which block our ability to absorb magnesium. Stress can deplete magnesium. Other other medications can deplete magnesium and in general people are stressed they're not sleeping well and these are all they have tight muscles um, they may have twitching muscles they're all signs of magnesium deficiency and it's interesting with testosterone um, magnesium can actually increase free and total testosterone levels um, there, we know that exercise can improve testosterone levels, and there was one study that was done on looking at men who weren't, were just exercising and not taking magnesium, men who were exercising and taking magnesium, and men who lived a sedentary life. And they found that the men who were supplementing with magnesium had the highest levels of free and total testosterone, and um, the levels increased from baseline once they started supplementing with magnesium. So what you're saying is that, you know, really those uh, pharmacological solutions to increasing testosterone, you know, pale in comparison to the powers of floating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that actually everybody, after listening to this, is really the point of this message. You want high testosterone, get in the tank, get, get <laughs> slow your mind down, reduce the cortisol, uh, I would think that there's a connection between cortisol and testosterone. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. There, there's a, a huge connection in the sense that um, the body can actually pull away from the production of testosterone if it needs to make more cortisol. Yeah, sure. But it makes sense because there really is a limited amount of energy that the body has. And so if it has to put resources into producing cortisol it's seeing that it's in a stressed state or it's perceiving that it is, then that would indicate, yeah, it, it doesn't really need to focus on testosterone right now. So, so that, that's, that's really interesting. And um, so is there anything else that you would, that you would add uh, to this conversation that you'd like people to yeah. know about what you do or just some information that would be useful to people listening that you'd want them to, to know? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing is that when people are struggling with, with chronic disease, David and I were just talking about how much it can impact the way that the, the brain programs itself. And when under stress, your body needs to adapt to it somehow to maintain survival. So when I see people in front of me who are sick, what I'm seeing is a body that's trying its hardest and its best to be well and function on a daily basis. And there's so much that you can do through nutrition, through exercise, through herbal medicine. Um, but at, at the bottom of it all is just rewiring your brain and reprogramming yourself. And it seems like a lot of limitations can be created by chronic disease, 
we, we saw limitations with this man who was in the waiting room earlier today. And floating can just move you into a, a place where you're limit, limitless, you're, you're floating, you're infinite. And I think that's a really healing experience for people. Yeah, thank you, Yeah, And I hope that, that more people in the medical profession will, will send people to float because obviously there's a huge connection between disease or breakdowns in the body and, and stress. And, and it just seems like a no-brainer, like just send them to the float tanks in order to enhance their, their health and wellness. So I, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you talking about some of the medical components of, of all of this. And, and you're going to be coming to our holistic happy hour. So anybody listening to this, come, come to, to iFloat on September 25th from 6 to 8 o'clock or later even uh, to meet Dr. Verdi and, and she, she'll be doing some complimentary one-on-one sessions and also setting up appointments for people. And, and, and how can people contact you if they want to contact you? Yeah, so uh, you can reach me by phone at 203-916-4600. Um, and you can also visit my Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Dr. K Verde. And uh, yeah, looking forward to meeting all of you. All right. Thanks so much for being here. And everybody listening to this, uh, check out our podcast either on our, our website or on iTunes. If you're listening to this on iTunes, please leave a review about our podcast so that more people can learn about it. And you can also make appointments to come float at iFloat at ifloatct.com or you can call us at 203-226-7378 to make appointments to come and get your float on. So have a good day, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.